The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, good morning again to you all. It's uh, good to be together again, uh, one final morning together. It does seem to have gone quickly, uh, and yet I've uh, been blessed immensely this week in speaking to many of you and uh, enjoying our Q&A times together and uh, enjoying family time here as well with uh, our children. So thank you for your, your kindness and uh, hospitality this week. Let's just recap very briefly uh, where we've been so far. We're talking about this week the calling of the church, the calling of the church. And so on night number one, if you can cast your mind all the way back to Sunday night, if you were here, we dealt with the hope of the church, and we talked about the necessity of hope in Christ and faithfulness to his word as the only source of hope and vitality for the future of the church. Then we considered the church and our calling in the broad sense by asking about the nature and origin of the church as God's people in history. And then we considered the apostolic calling of the church. We saw that the church is uh, not only called out, the ecclesia, in terms of its nature, but it's sent out in terms of a specific purpose, the kingdom of God. And then we considered the pastoral calling of the church and the shepherding, teaching role that the church has, both as a community and in the world. And then yesterday, we looked at the church and our conflict and we saw that uh, occultism or, and humanism at its root, uh, behind which stands our adversary, the devil, is a thing against which the church uh, is conflicting, but we've been given the armor of the Lord. Well, we're finishing gently today by considering the unity of the church, the unity of the church as we, in a sense, leave, as we come to the end of our week. Uh, and as you've heard many different things, uh, we want, I want to consider uh, with you the unity of the church. So we're going to read in a moment from Psalm 133. Before we do, let's just pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you are on the throne, that you are the sovereign Lord. We thank you that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the only potentate, the creator and the redeemer of all things. We thank you for the privilege of being called his children, being sons and daughters of the King. We thank you for the high calling that you have given to us. And today, Lord, we pray that by your Spirit you would Help us to understand the unity that is given to us in Jesus Christ as the family of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 133, a short psalm. Verses, I suspect, are very familiar to you. Psalm 133. Behold, how good... And how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. It's a short psalm. It's a brief uh, psalm of praise, an exhortation to unity and brotherly love. In fact, it's a a psalm in praise of unity and brotherly, brotherly love in terms of the covenant promise of God. Now, some think that uh, David penned this psalm, this psalm of ascents, when the people of God, when the children of Israel 
having been divided, were all gathered together in unity for his uh, coronation. When they met unanimously uh, to make him king, it's a possibility. And even though the psalm is very short, its content is very significant. We all know that David had uh, more than one wife, and he had several uh, children, a number of children, by his different wives. And it is possible that David, when he was writing this, had in mind the, some of the divisions that inflicted his own family. There's always a consequence for uh, not living by God's ideal purpose. And you know that there was conflict within the family of David and amongst his sons, and even rebellion uh, against him amongst his sons. And here there is an encouragement towards love and unity, one with the other, which would doubtless have been important in the life of, in the teaching of his family and of his sons. I remember this psalm being a particular favorite of my dad's, actually which he would often quote to us when we were arguing how good and pleasant it is when brothers, I have three of them, there's four of us, live together in unity. The the tribes of Israel had long had uh, separated interests during the period of the judges. There was a lot of conflict. There had been factions and divisions and disunity. And now they were coming together under God's anointed, this common head, the root of Jesse, King David, and he wanted them to understand that it would be for their advantage to be obedient to God and to live together in unity. The ark of the covenant, the ark of God's presence was now in one particular fixed location where they could meet together for worship, and the temple was a central place of unity. I think I mentioned earlier in the week that If you look at the way in which the villages and towns of Europe are designed, uh, having just uh, been back in England for um, several weeks and and visiting through Devon, driving through the south of England, you will notice that the center uh, of the town, at the center of the villages and the towns, was always a, a beautiful church because it was symbolic that the center of meaning and the center of unity was the worship of God. Well, David tells us that we have a guarantee of God's presence and a guarantee of God's blessing when we come together in unity in his name. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? We are now the temple of the living God, and we, t- we know that Peter says we are being built together as living stones into this temple. Paul, in fact, addresses himself directly to the problem of sectarianism in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he says, well, some say I'm of Apollos and others I'm of Paul and so forth. And he challenges them that this is not a godly way of being the church of God. And he concludes by reminding them that they are the temple of God, and although one planted and another watered, it is Christ who is the very foundation and the very center of our unity. And David tells us here that the unity which we can have as God's people is a commendable thing. It is good, and it is pleasant. It is agreeable. It's in conformity to the purpose and the will of God for his church to be in unity with each other. The illustration that he offers is of the oil of anointing on the head of Aaron, the high priest. The oil that uh, was used in the anointing of the priests had a very specific uh, set of ingredients, And it was fragrant, smelt wonderful. And it was poured all over the priest's head. You know when we anoint people in church today, if they're sick or whatever, usually we 
I have some anointing oil, and when we or my, I or the elders are praying for the sick, we put a tiny bit of oil and touch their head. Well, in the Old Testament, when you're anointed, you got a whole bucket load of that stuff, and you, you poured it all over their head, and it flowed down the head and upon the beard and upon Aaron's robe, and the scent, the smell of that oil filled the nostrils of all of the bystanders. It was plentiful. And the ointment was holy. It was set apart. It had a specific set of ingredients that God had laid out. And that particular, those particular ingredients for oil were not to be used for anything else. It was for a sacred and peculiar purpose. Reminding us that this precious oil couldn't be copied it was for, not for common use, it was for a particular special use that was precious in the sight of God. Aaron and his sons were not admitted to minister to the Lord until they'd been anointed with this oil. Their service was not acceptable to God until they'd been anointed in this way. And so we're told that this Unity is like this oil of anointing, which is, of course, symbolic of the presence of the Holy Spirit, and also like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. You know, dew is a marvelous thing. I took a little stroll, as per Hans Peter's instructions this morning, and uh, there's always dew on the ground in the morning. And it cools the air, it refreshes the ground. And in this area, this often parched area of Hermon and Zion, it needed the dew, it needed the morning dew to be refreshed. I used to do a lot of uh, camping, well my wife and I, Jenny, used to do a lot of camping uh, before we moved to Canada and before we had three small children in the north of England in an area called the Lake District. And one of my abiding memories uh, was waking up We'd go two or three times a year in a small canvas tent on the, near the edge of the lake and the smell of the dew and the morning breeze. It's a marvelous thing. It's one of the reasons we love coming up to a place like NBC because it's so fresh. Well, God says that that's what, that's the, that sense of refreshing and renewal is what happens when we as God's church live together as he calls us to in Unity, it is a thing of beauty, it is a thing that is precious, and it is where the blessing of God is commanded. It's interesting that the the psalmist does not list a series of specific blessings. He says, there the Lord commands the blessing, life forevermore. In other words, David takes all of the blessings of the covenant of God, he puts them all in one barrel load of oil, and he says, There, God commands the blessing, all of his blessings, life forevermore. That's an overview of Psalm 133. Where there is this unity, the blessing of God is present. So the question is, what is unity? And what is it not? What is the unity that the church is called to? And what is not the unity that the church is? is called to. Well, the first thing is that unity is not equalitarian humanism. You shouldn't be shocked by that, but I'm stating it anyway. Unity is not equalitarian humanism. That obviously needs more explanation because it doesn't help us qualify anything, does it yet? The cry of the French revolutionaries was liberty, fraternity, and equality. Liberty, fraternity, and equality. None of those things were in terms of the Word of God in the way that they understood them. And yet our modern understanding of, our contemporary understanding of liberty and fraternity and equality has been built on the understanding of these revolutionaries. Liberty for the humanist is redefined by social philosophers to mean, actually, in our own time, as it did for the revolutionaries, a total submission to the state, the displacement of God 
and submission to him and his sovereignty with a submission to, an unqualified submission, to the state. Jean-Jacques Rousseau was the writer of what's known as the social contract. And he really uh, revived this type of thinking. And what the modern humanist really believes is that without the regulations and controls and social planning of the modern state, there can be no liberty or unity. And actually, we've seen that the stronger and tighter and the more totalitarian the states have become, the more murderous nations have been, and the less real unity there is. Secularism for them is the ground of freedom. But actually, the Bible tells us that it's the Word of God that is the only basis for freedom. They talk about fraternity or brotherhood as defined by humanism as the necessity for a compulsory submission to the will of the elites. An enforced, in our own time, toleration of all views and behavior is equally valid. Remind you of any particular country? The enforced toleration of all views and all behavior as equally valid. That's called freedom and that's called fraternity. And equality, which by the way is not a biblical idea, I'll uh, define that in just a moment, which is the mantra of the day, is where everybody demands equal rights, Equal opportunities, equal pay, equal privilege, and even equal outcomes to every aspect of their lives. If they don't get it, they're shouting about it. They demand, then, the great leveling of all things. That's called unity. But the simple fact is this, friends. All people are not equal. Let me say that again. All people are not equal. Heretic, I hear you cry. What do I mean by that? Well, yes, we know that we are all created with equal dignity in the image of God. That's the basis of our equality. We are all made equal in the image of God as sharing His dignity and His image in us. Intrinsically as human beings. Does that mean the criminal... The murderer is equal to Mother Teresa. Look around this room, for example, for a moment. You are all human beings, and in that, in the image of God, you are equal. Is there anything else that is actually equal about any of you? Do you look the same? Do you have the same gifts? Do you have the same body shape? Do you have the same uh, proclivities? Do you have the same uh, looks? Do you have the same appearance? Do you have the same strength? Do you have the same intellectual capacity? No. There is unity insofar as we are human and made in the image of God, and after that, there is diversity. Diversity. The demand for equalization is not rooted in a desire for unity. It is rooted in envy. Equalization says, if they've got it and I don't, they can't have it either. Envy demands the leveling of all things because an envious person cannot tolerate superiority of any kind in others. Envy stands in the way of unity in the church and in society and in the way of all forms of progress. Humanists today turn the sin of envy into a virtue and they call it equality. You see, I may have the same job as somebody else. We may both work for the same company. But what if my colleague works much harder than I do, is better at his job than I am, and so our boss decides to pay him more. Have I been wronged? 
What if because of that fact he is more popular with the rest of the workforce than I am? There's a different outcome. Have I been wrong? You see how the modern concept of equality, fraternity, and liberty is based on the notion of equalization. And of course, if you have to equalize people, you must take away the liberty, frankly, of everyone. There's no room for difference. It creates, actually, and feeds conflict in society. Envy feeds this, and it is negation of communion and of unity. We often think nowadays of anybody who is successful or gifted or prosperous that they must be guilty or evil in some way because of their blessings and talents. They must be uh, climbing on the backs of others to get there. And instead of thanking God for the blessings that others have, that they are, of course, called to use in a godly way, we can simply become envious. Think about much of the mindless crime and vandalism and violence in our own age. It is envy externalized. How many of you have ever had a nice car that you've parked in a rough neighborhood? You know, my bro- brother uh, a few years ago bought a nice new Volvo, a really nice Volvo, and he lives in a reasonable neighborhood. But some youths came out one evening while he was inside, and they walked along the road, and every decent car, they kicked off the, uh, the wing mirrors of every single car in the street. Oh. Now, what's the motivation for that kind of thing? Well, very often it's, well, you have something, I want it, I can't have it, so you're not being blessed by it either. And we can have that attitude with respect to other people's gifts as well. None of us possess all the gifts that are necessary to be the church of God. We're all different. That's the beauty of human life. That's the beauty of the church. That we are all completely different, that we're not all equal, but there are important differences that make life worth living. The concept of equality belongs solely to the realm of mathematics. In mathematics, we say that the equal sign, which is, what is the equal sign? Two parallel lines that are completely equal when we say that the sides of the equation balance and we symbolize it with these two horizontal lines. In other words, with abstract things and commodities, the idea of equality is useful. You know, we stick uh, gold on one side of the balances and whatever else on the other side, and we need to understand equal weights and measures. Abstract things and commodities, two lengths of wood are equal in length so that we can make the door. But it doesn't work with people. Can you say that two Africans are are equal to two Englishmen? Can you say that two adolescents are equal to two seniors? No, of course you can't. That is actually to dehumanize them, to degrade them, and to misunderstand them. We are not commodities. We are not numbers. See, that's the first thing a totalitarian state does is depersonalize society and turn everybody basically into a number. Our text doesn't say how good and pleasant it is when men and women live together in liberty, fraternity, and equality. It says how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. And unity isn't easy for the very reason that we are all different. If we were all absolutely equal in every way, not only would life be exceedingly dull and intolerably boring, but we wouldn't need to strive for unity because we'd all be exactly the same. Do you know, even in heaven, there is not going to be equality in the humanistic sense. 
you will not suddenly become Beethoven or C.S. Lewis. You will not suddenly have all the gifts that everybody else has always possessed. No, you in the uniqueness and the individuality that you have been given by God, that's the wonderful thing about non-equality is that makes all of us unique. Unique in the gifts, the callings, the person that God has made us to be, we will all have a unique, special contribution. See, when I had my uh, house recently renovated, actually, it seems endless renovations on the last three or four homes. You know what it's like when you buy a fixer-upper and then you kind of end up doing it again and again. I don't do the carpentry myself for a very good reason. It would be awful. But I have a very good friend who's a very good carpenter. I don't wander around my house going, can't stand this guy, look at that. No, I wander around my house saying, look at the way he's built those, look at my bookshelves in my office. They're fantastic. Thank you. Okay, I pay him as well. But then I have my own unique way of earning a living, which he wouldn't do. Now, in in heaven, our potentiality will be the same as our actuality. That is, what is actualized in our lives will be our full potential in God. But I will still be able to rejoice in Johann Sebastian Bach's compositions and glorify God because of it. And that's what actually the demolition of pride in the end finally is. It's to be able to rejoice and celebrate in the accomplishments of others without envy and resentment. So unity is not equalitarian humanism. It's not saying we must equalize everything in the church and copy the vision of the world, which is hell on earth. Unity also is not peace. Unity does not mean perfect peace. Peace today, again, is another thing that is idealized and falsified in the process. People talk about peace in this and in that area, and as desirable as peace is, peace is a desirable thing, it is not given priority in Scripture over unity. You know that you can find peace in a graveyard. Very peaceful. Nobody's irritating you. Nobody's talking to you. Everybody is at perfect peace. You can find peace in complete solitude. Nobody to trouble you or to bother you. But in God's church, when we're all together, there isn't always perfect peace, is there? Unity is given priority in togetherness because unity is good and it is pleasant. And biblical unity is capable of tolerating diversity within certain limits and doesn't seek to destroy it. Totalitarianism is that idea, it's a relatively new word, but it's a very old concept, that one order, one institution, that is the state, swallows everything else and creates a false idea of unity by subsuming in its arms everything else and ruling over it totally. So there is no sphere of liberty outside the ever-extending arm and authority of the state. That's why the state today wants to legislate what marriage is, what the church is, what human life is. It wants to wants to stick its finger into every single pie and define life from the cradle to the grave. That's totalitarianism. doesn't necessarily have a gulag, although it eventually ends there, usually. Biblical unity, though, tolerates diversity within limits. It doesn't seek to destroy it. Islam, for example, which is a pale and poor copy of Christianity, cannot tolerate diversity. 
the main reason for that is it's not Trinitarian. You see, in our God, there is unity within diversity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Son voluntarily submits himself to his Father, and the Holy Spirit speaks only of what the Son tells him. So although there is an absolute equality in the nature of God, in his being, in his essence, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equally ultimate in the economic trinity in God's revelation of himself. The Son says he only wants to do what he sees his Father doing. And he submits himself to the will of his Father. Does that mean they're not equal? Has the son now been robbed of his dignity because he's submitting to his father? This is how it's supposed to be in the church. When we submit to our leaders or when we submit to our uh, mutual submission in marriage, submitting to our husbands or to our wives, we do so as unto the Lord. Not because we're saying, oh, well, you, of course, your opinion's better than mine, or you're smarter than me. But because God has a particular order and a structure, so children are to honor their parents. What, have children just been robbed of their dignity and honor? Of their equality, because they are to submit to their parents? And yet now, we live in a culture where increasingly children dictate to their parents what is going to happen. Paul the Apostle restates, by the way, the fifth commandment. Is it the fifth? Let me count here. What number is it? Number five. Yeah, it is. Thank you. That's another thing. We should all know the Ten Commandments. Remember that. <laughs> Love the Lord your God with heart, mind, soul, and strength, uh, and strength. Do not make for yourself an idol. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false testimony. Do not covet. Our grandparents would all have known those. Where was I? Children, yes. Paul the Apostle says, honor your father and your mother that it may go well with you and you may live long in the earth. The first commandment, he says, with a promise. Marriage is a good example of unity without necessarily perfect peace. Because in marriage, you bring two different people together in a real unity where there can be some disagreements and some rubbing each other the wrong way and so on and so forth because there is no perfection, no perfect peace between people who are in close relationship this side of heaven. No absolute peace because we all have our fair share of sins and failures and you might think that yours are all lovable ones but your partner may not and Unity in marriage is more important than perfect peace because we can still have unity in Christ and His kingdom purposes and have the unity of the Spirit without necessarily agreeing about absolutely everything. Without necessarily liking all of the same things and so forth. The greatest thing that can be attained in this world, this side of heaven, in the life of the church is unity. Unity. Now, it's possible to have a completely peaceful marriage that is without conflict or dissension that actually does not have unity because one person is crushing or manipulating or dominating the other in such a way that they are enforcing their way upon the other. That isn't unity, even if it's peaceful because nobody dares speak. What does the absence of unity then really look like? Well, the world nurtures falsehoods, and because of that, it cannot live together with others in unity. 
You see, in the name of freedom today, we are being told that you can't hold different opinions to what the secular elite tell us, because otherwise you're mentally ill. You're sick. There's something wrong with you if you disagree with them. If you think there's something wrong, for example, or something against God's order in certain sexual practices, you're a homophobe. You're mentally ill. You see, the subtle enforcement of one particular idea, falsifying the idea of unity, cannot live with other people. It cannot tolerate faults in others. And it cannot tolerate inequalities. And so people begin to hate those who are in some measure unequal. Driven by this covetousness, this jealousy and resentment that seeks this great leveling and hatred and covetousness then masquerade as virtues. And hatred and covetousness today in Canadian culture are masquerading as a virtue. In the church, people will often begin well and then they want to leave, not because of real issues of truth and doctrine when we should leave, because there is a time to leave a given local church. When a church has left and abandoned the truth, is propagating false doctrine, or has lost an understanding of the vision that God has for his people in terms of the kingdom of God, we need to be seriously thinking about the church that we're in. Those are issues of substance. But when many people leave a church, it's not because of those things. It's because somebody's upset them on a committee. And they can no longer tolerate a relationship in the church, a particular person. Or the pastor hasn't visited them enough. Or didn't acknowledge them when they got back from something. And endless trivialities. Well, that's an attitude of the world getting into the church. Toleration of faults in others is impossible for some people. And so, with all the options that we have around us today in our consumerist-driven culture, we say to ourselves, well, okay, I'm really fed up with these people, so I'll go somewhere else. There's plenty of options. There's plenty of choices. Oh, I don't really like the singing here. It's a bit... uh, bit lame. The band's not very good. I'll go somewhere else. Now, it's one thing to say that worship is dishonoring to God because it is fundamentally dishonoring or even blasphemous in its character. That's one thing. It's another to say, well, I'm not sure about the music. Or, I'm really tired of such and so, so and so on this committee, or I really just can't tolerate seeing that person anymore. I know of a, of a couple. I knew of a couple of considerable means who incessantly move house, move schools, move church, endlessly complaining about the faults of others in this or that church, this or that denomination, this or that school, and on and on. No one measures up. No one's good enough. Any triviality will do as an excuse to leave a friendship and move on. And because they've got means, they can just go and buy influence elsewhere. And despite all the usefulness that they have had to the kingdom of God because of the resources God's given them, they have limited that usefulness by the disgrace of their personal testimony. That they cannot get on with anybody else. And they think other people are difficult. And that's the thing. When you find yourself drifting around, finding everybody else difficult, look in the mirror and ask yourself, maybe others are looking at me and saying, Look how difficult and divisive they are. Living together in unity means that we have to tolerate both our superiors and our inferiors. We used to talk in those terms in our culture, that somebody was a cultivated individual, or somebody had a superior mind. We weren't intimidated by that because we were able to recognize and value differences and see them as God-given. But sometimes we get get to a point where we're unwilling to tolerate faults in others or live with any kind of 
problem, and so we quit. Such people, eventually, if they go from church to church and drift from one place to the next, the conflict soon spills out in their own home as well and in their own marriage. And we have to be careful that we don't allow unresolved conflicts to persist constantly in our lives because eventually we make shipwreck of ourselves. Thirdly, then, unity as it relates to freedom. Sometimes we say it's unity or freedom. Unity or freedom. So God says, be in unity with each other. There I command the blessing. And then we say, well, who really needs it? We've got plenty of options. Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, bear one another's burdens. And that means sometimes forbearing and bearing with somebody else who is intensely irritating or difficult. And doing it patiently. How blessed we are, says David, when we live together in unity. It's the place where God commands a blessing. Today we often crave an interpretation uh, of freedom over and against a biblical understanding of community. Let me give you a couple of interesting examples. One of the surest ways for a church to grow, for a church to grow numerically in our own time, is to reach several hundred people. And when it hits that point, we suddenly see a lot of these churches explode. Often when you analyze it, not because of effective evangelism and reaching the lost and their kingdom witness in multiple spheres, but suddenly people think there is a good place to go and feel successful where I won't have to do anything. Am I treading on any toes? Just say, ow, this morning if you hear anything there. In other words, what I'm saying is we sometimes say to ourselves, well, in that big church, no one's going to ask me to serve. Nobody's going to tap on my shoulder and ask me to volunteer. Nobody's going to ask me to get involved. I can write checks but not necessarily tithe my income because it won't really be noticed. The budget's big enough. And we can sit and consume teaching and feel good about the large mission budget and feel like we're part of something significant and feel free to flit in and flit out and have minimal commitment. We say that freedom is better than unity. And that's a peculiar disease of the North American church. Not all large churches are like that. Don't get me wrong. Don't go away and say, Joe says, if your church is more than 200, you're unfaithful. That's not what I'm saying. But it's easy for us to go there, to get there, to pursue a lowest common denominator Christianity where an impersonal experience of church life means I can consume a message. It can be online or via TV or turning up occasionally. And we're not concerned about taking communion frequently. And to be involved with others is just too much like hard work. It's too costly. Modern city dwellers, ironically, often go to the intensity, the, the, uh, the intensity of the city and its vast population, not to seek community, but to seek freedom. Freedom. Why? Well, because there you can be largely anonymous. In a smaller community, people know who you are. They know your business. They can see when your car's not on the driveway. They know what your children are up to, and so on. But in the city, where there's 5 million people, or like London, 13 million people crammed together, you can be the loneliest soul in the world, and never even know the name of the person in the apartment above you or beneath you. Jenny and I used to live in uh, Fulham in, in southwest London. Even, I don't think in three years, we, we caught sight 
of uh, our, our neighbors more than two or three times. That was partly our fault. We should have demanded that they let us in for a meal or something. But that's one of the reasons why people go to the cities because they don't want a life interlocked with others very often. They feel it's a place for anonymity. To be part of the church, though, is to have a life interlocked with the lives of others and their problems. Because their problems are now your problems. Weep with those who weep. And laugh, rejoice with those that rejoice. To be part of a church is to be involved in these things. And as people have abandoned community in the cities, they've abandoned mutual responsibility. One of the reasons why there was what we call white flight, sociologically, out of the downtown of Toronto in the 70s and 80s, was partly because the churches didn't want the responsibility of working and laboring for social change in the city and redeeming newcomers and fleeing for a quieter and more convenient life without the challenges of ethnic diversity and grappling with the social problems, the churches fled out of the downtown core. I think that's true. Now, in the early days of America, when hooligans from all over the world were landing in New York at five points, and the police couldn't even go there, And they thought that uh, they, they were going to need a standing army, a large standing army to keep their own country under control, to police their own citizens. Do you know who went into the Five Points area, converted all those Irish thugs? Christian women, mainly. Missionaries flooded the cities, flooded the most derelict areas, and brought people to the faith. Taught them a trade, gave them a sense of self-respect. They won those people to Christ. Now we think, well, it's a bit inconvenient. I know I'm a church planter in the downtown of Toronto, and being part of it requires responsibility and involvement with each other. And some people will come and visit and they think, oh gosh, it's a bit small. I might get asked to do something. Some will refuse to join a church altogether. They will visit churches endlessly because they don't want to get asked to get involved. Crime is actually influenced by this problem. Not just, of course, in the church, but in communities at large because crime in our communities used to be handled completely differently than to the way it is today. Some of you uh, older men and women here will remember that if you got the cane at school, you got home and you got it from your dad as well because they backed up the teacher. When the teacher gave you detention, your parents didn't come in and shout at the teacher and say, well, you're picking on my son. I speak to a lot of teachers today. They say children haven't changed. Children are children. The parents have changed. Crime used to be handled differently because, for example, a wife beater who was known to be abusing his wife. He didn't go to the police. Some of the men of the community went to speak with him. And if he didn't listen, they thrashed him. A community thrashing. Now, don't go home and say, Joe is recommending that in the, <laughs> in the church, uh, somebody's out of line. No, what I'm saying is that the changes in our culture have meant that every time there's some sort of social problem, we assume it's a police matter. Turn up the TV, don't hear the arguing next door, quick. Turn up the radio. We don't want to be involved in the lives of other people. Now, granted, some of us think, well, if I interfere, I'll get stabbed. That's part of the ongoing problem of the lack of the community willing to police itself. But any police officer will tell you, that's why we create, create these community watch uh, areas and community groups, because you cannot police a community without the help of the community. And in, in a few years ago, 
If a man was mistreating his wife, the community would get involved. His employer would be told, and his employer would say to him, you better stop this. You're a bad reflection on my business. You're going to get fired if you keep this behavior up. Well, now he'd take you to court for unfair dismissal. Many problems arise from this failure because we don't want to live together in unity. We can't live together in marriage. We can't tolerate one another. And isolation becomes the order of the day. People plunge themselves into the world of their iPods and the internet and so on and so forth. Have you ever noticed these days how you walk down the street mid-morning and everybody's plugged in listening to something? People want to be increasingly shut off from their environment and the world. It's self-inflicted isolation. Unwilling to handle the challenges and disturbances of life, people retreat into these illusory worlds and have their digital friends and digital church and video church and on and on. So, well, I don't need to go to church. I just watch so-and-so on TV. Charles Stanley fed me this morning. That's not the same as being in the house of God with the people of God. Finally, unity and the Spirit. David says it's good and it's pleasant when we live together in unity. Now, don't forget, you haven't heard me use the term ecumenism once in this sermon. I am not saying that we march down the road to the local ministerial fraternity and start trying to have unity with every heretic we can find. No, there is only unity in the truth. And that's why God's people come together around the truth, around the Word of God, around the sacrament, tolerate our differences and our inequalities because we are a kingdom of priests unto God and communion is the essence of our community. That with all our differences, we are members of one another. As the precious oil of unity which symbolizes the Holy Spirit flowed down on the beard and on the robe of Aaron, we are told God's Spirit is at work. God's Spirit is at work, not at variance and discord, but mutual service and faithfulness. That's where brotherly love prevails, mutual service and faithfulness. Where that's absent in the life of the church, we deny ourselves as God's church the blessing of God. Aaron was covered from head to toe, and what a marvelous picture that is as he was anointed priest and his, and his descendants were anointed as priests, he was made fit to minister before God and glorify God in this unity. And here this blessing is commanded as the Spirit of God is poured out. And that doesn't necessarily mean this perfect peace, but it means forbearance and patience and burden-bearing. And there, says David, there is life forevermore to bear one another's burdens. You know, I was reading this morning in Matthew where Jesus at the end is separating out the nations at the judgment. And he puts some on the right and he puts some on the left. And he's separating the sheep from the goats. And he says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you helped me. When I was a stranger, you took me in. When I was in prison, you visited me. And they said, Lord, Lord, when did we, when did we do this? We, we don't remember doing that to you. He says, as often as you did want this to the least of these, my brothers. You know, the brothers are the church. You did it to me. If we can't live in this place, God will not command the blessing. This is expressed in the simplest of ways sometimes. Some months back, I was having a difficult time in the life of the church. Well, I'm always having a difficult time in the life of the church plant, but this was a particularly challenging time uh, because I was feeling unwell. I was very, very tired, and the bank account of the church was exceedingly low. And uh, I hadn't shared this with anyone, but one of my brothers on the staff team, a beautiful black man from the West Indies called Howard, who is one of my associate pastors, just called me up that morning as I was sat in my office and he prayed for me 
and encouraged me and exhorted me. And there, God commanded a blessing. It can be done in the simplest and most routine of ways. A word of encouragement here, a prayer of support here, a visit here. And people then realize and know they are part of the community of the redeemed. The pronouncement was made upon the promised land, the covenant people's inheritance. Commandments of God come with promise, as we saw about honoring our parents. Deuteronomy tells us of the blessings on covenant obedience. It's like this dew that descends on Mount Hermon. It's not a solitary blessing. Here's another issue. When husband and wife are called to live together in in unity... It says that they're to pursue this unity together. Not one, but both must pursue this unity together so that their prayers are not hindered. Peter tells us that. And actually, as a church, our prayers can be hindered where there are divisions and factions and backbiting and infighting, usually because our eye is not on the kingdom of God, but upon trivialities. God pours out His Spirit on a community of believers One of the negative emphases of our time has been that when we pursue the blessing of God, we think we are to pursue it alone in a solitary way. The medieval concept of, well, if you want to be holy and set apart, go and live in a monastery and in solitariness there in prayer, seek the blessing of God, the blessed life. It's easy to be holy on your own. Shutting the between four small walls, nobody else to irritate you. I can imagine I'd find focus on prayer and so forth quite easy. It's harder to be holy in community. And that's what we're made for, community. This pietistic ideal of blessing being a solitary thing or the Spirit being poured out on me for my own blessing to give me gifts rather than seeing the blessing of God poured out on the community of believers, is an emphasis that we really do need to recover. Unity, then, is a yoke. It joins us together in life. You know, marriage is described as a blessing in Scripture, but it's also described as a yoke. It, has a, it governs us in some important way. Because with community comes responsibility and the yoke involves facing problems and our fallenness and our failures and finding the unity that we have in Christ. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am meek and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Peace that we all seek is a byproduct then of faith, obedience and living in unity. Peace is the byproduct. You can't seek it directly. We have to be obedient, and then God will grant us his peace. We cannot seek that peace in isolation, but only as we are called out together as the people of God, the ecclesia called out and then sent out in terms of God's purpose. As we pursue that purpose around the truth, we live in unity and forbearance with one another. My house is a busy place at the moment. It's always got people in it. It's got three small children in it. Lots of meetings in it. Lots of people and so forth. Running, playing, laughing, squabbling, sometimes some screaming. All signs of life. If I want peace, I can go and live in a graveyard. Where there is life, there is mess. There are the signs of life. And there are problems. But when we pursue this unity that we have in Christ as a communion of saints around the truth, there the Lord commands a blessing. Not where we seek an equalitarianism that levels all to meet the selfish agendas and the envious intentions and jealous factions that often stir in our hearts, but when we rejoice and celebrate in the giftedness and callings of others and forbear with their problems and, their, and the things which irritate us, because you irritate other people as well, 
There God will command the blessing as we seek the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And community and communion are related words. They come from the same root word. When we have communion together as God's people, as God's church, we are celebrating the diversity of our community in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your great mercy and love toward each of us. We thank you that you have called us out, sent us forth as a body, as a community of believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as a communion of saints. We pray that you would give us this unity of which your word speaks, which we know is not perfect peace or perfect equality, but unity in the bond of peace through the work of the Holy Spirit. Help us to unite together around the truth, around your kingdom concerns, in common cause, finding in the place of communion our unity in Jesus Christ. Forgive us our sins, we pray, Lord. Forgive us our factions, our jealousies, our dissensions, our divisions, and help us to love one another as Christ has called us to. We thank you for the gift of your Son who lives and reigns with you, world without end. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.